Well, let's do just that. Let's put Jesus right in the middle this morning. And let's behold Him. We're going to look at Jesus in the Gospel of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Uh, Please turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to Exodus chapter 33. The title of the message today is Behold the Way. Behold the Way. And when we come to Exodus chapter 33, Israel has uh, found itself at the foot of the Mount Sinai. And really in uh, chapter 33, they have just come out of confessing and being judged of God for making a golden calf. You remember as Moses was on top of the mountain receiving the commands of God, the, the covenant of God, the constitution for the nation of Israel... At the bottom of the mountain, at the bottom of the thundering and shaking, trembling mountain, there was the people of Israel and they were taking the gold that they had spoiled from the Egyptians in the exile and they poured them into a furnace and out came a golden calf. And they began to worship this idol in the very presence of Jehovah. God dealt with them severely. And the people's heart was broken and they were led into repentance. And here we begin in chapter 33 to find out what continues on as God deals with his people. And so our text this morning will be in verses 12 through 16, but let's, let's begin reading in verse number 1, Exodus chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from out Horeb onward. And we'll pause here for a moment. And so the people before had taken much of the gold, sometimes even their earrings and their nose rings and things like that, and they had cast them into the furnace and out came a golden calf. It seems that there was still remaining much of their jewelry and ornaments. And there was still a little bit of a show. And before it had been a show, it was a, a show of God's mercy. God supplied them and said, the Egyptians will give you a sort of a bribe to leave because of these plagues, they want you out of their land, and so they're gonna they're gonna spoil you, and you can spoil them to leave the land. And so it was a little bit of a show of the mercy, but now God says, "There's really nothing of a show of you. There's nothing to show off anymore. You need to 
look like on the outside what you look like on the inside. Now you're a poor people. And there's nothing that you need to be full of pride about. And so even a signal of your pride, your ornamentation, your jewelry, your costume, it needs to be shed. Because you're not a people who have anything to be proud about. You need to be broken apart. Because you continue to resist me. You're stiff-necked. You do not look down. And you need to look down. And if it would be even by the means of this jewelry, the removal of it, and so so doing, you're, you need to demonstrate in a way that you're really just a people who are naked and full of shame. You do not deserve adorning. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far away from the camp. And he, he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand the presence of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses And with all the people who saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses turned again into the camp. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses, by a second sign, was showing the holiness of God, that God could not stand to be in the midst of his people. They had shown themselves a pattern of rebellion. Their hearts were broken. They had not yet fully turned unto him, and they were not worthy of his presence. And so his tent of meeting would be outside the camp. God would remain separate among separateness. From his people. Moses, seeing the separateness of God and understanding the nature and the holiness of God, then speaks to the Lord in verse 12, which begins the text of our sermon this morning. Moses said to the Lord, You say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider this too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. You remember in verse number three, 
God told Moses, I will not go up among you. And so therefore Moses is asking, well, who will go with us then? And Moses says, I don't want to go if you don't go. Behold the way this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, here, not like in this time in Exodus 33, here you, you tent with us, you tabernacle with us by means of your presence in the Holy Spirit. We praise you and thank you that you are not far off. While we are unworthy, you have counted us worthy by the blood of Christ to be in the tent of meeting this morning. And may we, like Moses, draw near to you face to face and, and relish to be in your favor through Jesus. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would show us, show us you before anything else. For certainly all of us have many questions on our hearts this morning and many doubts and anxieties and ambitions. Father, may you be our ambition. May you be at the center of our attention. May you train our hearts to look only unto you and to desire and to be satisfied with only beholding you. Train us this morning by your word. May you be honored and exalted during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was that an afflicted people would be the object of grace. As the people were enslaved in Egypt, God looked down, as you remember, in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, and his heart was broken for his people who for 400 years had been enslaved by the pharaohs. God would bring grace upon afflicted people. Do you know that God loves to give grace to afflicted people? God doesn't resist afflicted people. You need to know that because so often as, as a child of God in the midst of your suffering, it may feel that God is holding back grace, but it's not true. One of God's greatest delights is to draw near to those who are suffering and to give them grace. In Egypt, God's people would be a people who would receive His grace. And 430 years then, God would bring about deliverance to His people. But do you know that God will not afflict afflicted people? But He will afflict proud people. In the wilderness, the people manifested not that they were afflicted people, for God was providing God was providing in multiple ways for the, the comfort, for the provision of His people. In the wilderness we see God treating His people a little differently than He treated them in Egypt. For in Egypt they were an afflicted people and in need of grace. But now that they have received grace, now their hearts have swollen with pride. God characterizes them as a stiff-necked people. This is, this is quite, a, quite a title. Listen, you and I should tremble that God would ever consider you and I a stiff-necked person. Woe to be unto you and I as a child of God if God would ever put the title upon us to be a stiff-necked person. Because the way in which God deals with stiff-necked people is, is with the grace of humiliation. With the grace of humiliation. 
And this too would be part of His mercy and grace, is that He would humble His people. He would make His people so that they could not even bring the, the most base thing unto themselves, bread and water. Do you remember two years ago? I hate to bring that up, but it seemed that you and I lived in a time where we could not even bring to our own homes toilet paper. That we cannot bring to our homes bread. There is a sweet time of humiliation, not always in the middle of it, but in the looking back of it, in the, the desire to say, God, oh, that I, I remember what it was like to depend upon you for the most basic things. Israel was in such a situation in the wilderness that it was that they could not provide for themselves. There was no green in the land. There was no water in the land. It would needs be that even for the most basic human necessities, that the strongest man and the strongest family and the strongest tribe couldn't bring bread to the table, lest God provide. God was doing a humbling thing in the work of His people, but... Instead of remaining humble, there arose a pride about them. By the way, what is the condition of your heart today, two years later? How dependent upon the Lord are you today for toilet paper, for bread, for water? I might assume, and I ask your forgiveness if I assign it unjustly to you, but if you're anything like me, I'm not sure that I am as God-dependent as I would like to be, or perhaps that I had experienced in the midst of all of the pandemic chaos. Oh, that God would do this. And it is a, it is a humbling and it is a fearful prayer for us to pray. God, would you make us dependent upon you for everything? But here in the midst of their rebellion and in the midst of their pride, In verse number 12, we see Moses pray a prayer that is patterned after grace. Now Moses is leading these people and he has just dealt with this this situation at the base of Sinai, the golden calf, and he has enraged and called the people unto repentance and broken the tablets that God had inscribed. But now here in verse number 12, Moses prays a prayer that is full of grace. By the way, when when you look upon a person of pride, what is your prayer like? Do you pray a prayer of, of indignation? Do you pray a prayer of imprecatory work of God upon them, which may not be entirely wrong to pray? Or do you pray a prayer of grace upon the head of the one who you cannot stand to be in their sight? Moses himself even seems to, if I can, if I can just, let me suggest it, that he could not stand to be in the presence of the people. Perhaps it was out of joy and peace of mind also that he was setting up this tent outside of the camp of the people. 
Do you like to be around people who are full of pride? Oh, they are the, some of the worst people to be in the company with. And then how is your prayer driven towards them? But here we find Moses. Oh, such a man after God's own heart. He is praying for the people. It is only when we have been stripped like the people of Israel here of the ornaments of our pride. And really lay naked and, and bare before exposed before God that we can be dealt with. God sometimes has to strip us of the things that bring us great pride in order to get into the heart of where the pride remains. Listen, the naked sinner can be clothed, but a finely adorned sinner must be stripped. Moses took the tabernacle from among them and he pitched it outside of the camp. They had disowned God. God could not be, he could not stand to be in the midst of his rebellious people. And here we find Moses being a mediator, a mediator who speaks of grace. And that's what makes him a mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. It's like a go-between, a negotiator or a diplomat. And Moses prays that God would graciously pardon and patiently abide with these types of people. It's a beautiful prayer here that Moses prays. And only God could have such patience, patience to love people so purely. Do you love people full of pride? They're the hardest to love. Well, let's look this morning at four parts of prayer that is in the way, that is in the way that God is providing. Number one, we want to see that Moses desires to know God. Look in verse number 12. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send to me. Now, Moses is a little bit in the dark here about how God is going to lead Moses into, into Israel if God isn't going to be the pillar that goes before them. Moses, has, in a sense, wants to know whoever God sends to help Moses, Moses wants to know, is it, is it going to be Joshua? Is it going to be Caleb? Is it going to be some others? And as we read further, God says that it's going to be himself that goes with Moses. And Moses, upon learning that God himself is going to be the one who goes with him, he wants to know God all the more. Moses doesn't pray, oh, it's just you? He says, upon hearing that it is God Himself, He says, I want to know you all the more then. If you're the kind of God who's going to contend with these people, if you're the kind of God of, God of all patience, if you're the God of long-suffering, if you're the God that's going to walk with this kind of people into the promised land, then I want to know you more. He wants to know because it's going to be a daunting task. He wants to know who it is that's going to lead him into the promised land because, because he knows the kind of people that he's leading. He knows the kind of people that he's serving. He knows their nature. He knows they love to wear the ornaments. He knows that they love to complain. He, he knows it's going to be a hard task if they're going to defeat the, the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites. Then, then with, it's going to be a daunting task to lead these types of people into the promised land because they really know very little about warfare. They've been oppressed. And he knows their hearts. Their hearts are fickle. They make 
They make a golden calf every time he turns around. He wants to know who it is that's going to help him because he knows who he's leading. But he also knows who he's going to be defeating. It's a daunting task because he knows this is the kind of army you've given me. You've given me this kind of people to lead into the promised land. They're hard to lead. And you want me to lead them against some of these foes? Some of these people make iron, make swords, make spears, make chariots. Some of these people build great walls like Jericho. You want, you want me to go into the promised land with this type of people against that type of people? He wants to know. Because Moses senses his inadequacy. Moses senses his inadequacy. Which, by the way, is in complete contradiction to how Israel feels. Israel feels like they can do anything. Israel feels like it can bring its own water from the rock. Israel feels like they could go back to Egypt and the flesh pots will be full. Israel has a, a false sense of identity. But Moses doesn't. Standing before the Lord, Moses is willing to be completely transparent and reveals that he feels completely inadequate for the task. And by the way, this is not a, a wrong posture for the believer to have before God. There ought to be times when you come before the Lord and say, God, I feel completely inadequate and unless you go with me, I, I'm not the one. There ought to be times like that. And by the way, it... It really ought to be every moment of every day. But if times of significance, especially, if times in which God has called you unto a task, unto a, a certain project, a, a certain reparation in a relationship, a reconciliation, whatever it may be, where it seems beyond your ability, that's okay that you're overwhelmed. Come to God and say, God, unless you go with me, I can't even begin to unlock this door. I can't even begin to enter into this task. It's a sense of inadequacy. Moses didn't desire to know God because it was going to make life easier. Moses wanted to know God because that was what his journey was going to be all about. Sometimes we have a little bit more of a pragmatic reason for getting to know God. A quick revival of heart. Oh God, unless you help me here, it's not going to happen. But notice the sincerity of Moses' heart. Notice that Moses wants to know God as the journey. Not to make the journey easier. So listen to the heart of his words. Again, looking at verses 12 and 13. See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Why? Why show me your ways? So that it gets a little easier, so that I can prepare. No. That I may know in order to find favor in your sight. I want to know your ways because I want to be your delight. I don't want to just know your ways because... I want to know how it's all going to work out. 
And so secondly, Moses desires to know God's God himself, and he desires to know God's way. And he says he has favor, and yet he wants favor. So he says at verse number 12, towards the end, I know you by name, and you have also found, you have also found favor in my sight. He says, I, God, you told me that I'm, I'm part of your favor. I found your favor. Verse 13. But if I have found favor, please now show me your ways. He says he has favor, and yet he wants favor. He wants direction to be on the right path. He wants confirmation that he's on the right path. This is what he wants. He doesn't want the path to be his path. He doesn't want the path to be the one that he dictated and that he dreamed about. And by the way, we're all really good at dreaming and and conjuring up our own paths. We come up with our own plans. We come up with our own ifs and what ifs. We're really good at telling God what the path ought to look like. But not Moses. Moses here in, in in sincere and humble heart says, God, I, I want to be, I want to be on the right path. He doesn't say, I want to be on the easiest path. I want to be on the path. He doesn't say, I want to be on the path that agrees with me. But his sincerest desire is that he would be in the favor of God and know that he's on the right path. He wants to be, he wants to be in the middle of God's ways, not because of comfort or in order to alleviate fear. It's evident in his request that, that Moses wants to know God's ways because he wants to be following in them and them only. He is scared, listen, not of God's ways, he's scared of his way. You and I ought to have a holy and humble fear of our own way. We know where our ways take us. Our ways take us always towards death and destruction. Our ways never take us the right way. And Moses is concerned. He does not want to stray from God's right path. The writer of Proverbs says, that a wise man walks in the middle of the road and he doesn't want to go to the left or to the right. And if he falls, he wants to pull his foot up out of the ditch. He wants to be on the right path. Often, often when we pray and we are asking God for direction and guidance in our lives, our request for knowing God's will isn't motivated by the desire to do His will, His way. We just want to know what his will is. And then we'll figure out the way to do it. We want to do God's will our way. We want to know his ways because we want to know whether or not we're going to agree with them. We want to know his ways because we want to eliminate the faith factor and we want all the facts and data before we follow him. We want to have no reason why we should be afraid before we take the first step. But notice that Moses' 
wants to follow in God's ways because foremost, he wants God's pleasure upon him. God's pleasure is Moses' pleasure. Is your pleasure to do God's pleasure? What brings you the highest pleasure? What pleases you? What makes you feel successful? What makes you feel like you've done a job well done? What makes you feel at rest and at peace? Is it that you got everything checked off on your list? Or is it that you have found that you have done God's will, God's way? Well, thirdly, as they are meeting with one another, God responds. And God gives a gracious assurance of his presence. We notice again that it wouldn't be Joshua and Caleb, although worthy and mighty of these men were found to be. It wouldn't be anyone else but God himself. And God promises to be with him, with him personally. Notice in verse number 14, and he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Oh, this is a change. This is a change. This is really great news because in verse number 3, God had said, I can't go with those people. I'm not going to go with those people. Someone else, an angel, a representative of me is going to go with them, but not me. I'm not going to be present with them. But God promises to be with him. And God promises to be with Moses personally. My presence will go with you, Moses. My presence will go with you. Not just all of Israel, but with Moses. God's presence is often how God answers this type of request. What was the request? Show me your ways. What was the answer? I will be with you as you go into the way. Listen, often we want God's direction without God's involvement. Oh God, would you show me the right decision to make here? Would you show me what to do? But then once you show me, just back out of it. I got it from there. I'll take care of it. I can do it. I've done it in the past. I've done something like this similar. I know how to handle this, so just show me the way and, and I'll take care of it. We want God's direction without God's involvement. And sometimes we want God's direction without God's presence. Just show me what to do, God. I'll go do it. I don't really need you to be around me telling me what to do. I've, got, I've done this before. Just show me. I just, just give me the marching orders. Often we want God's direction without His presence. Just tell me where to go. Just give me the coordinates. And I'll thank you when I get there. I'll praise you. I'll, I'll do it. Lord, I, you know, just answer this prayer. I'll be alright. The fact is, that if God isn't there, then there's no rest. If God isn't there, you don't get there. If God doesn't go with Israel to the promised land, they don't get the promised land. You know, you can't do God's will without God. And in the Christian's life, there needs to be a, a pattern, there needs to be a 
a, a, a bookmark, a, a speed bump. There needs to be times of confession where we look back over our day, over our moments, over our week, over our year, over our life, and say, Oh God, I did things that were your will, that I knew that were right, but I didn't do them with you. I did them for you. I obeyed you. But I know that you had more for me. And it wasn't even about the place that I should arrive. It's about you. God, I have served you, but I didn't know you. One of the greatest regrets of a Christian's life is that they could serve God and never draw near to know him. Not only is it one of the greatest regrets, but by the way, it's one of the greatest temptations. Because you and I can sometimes feel very comfortable serving God without being in his presence. And Moses prays, and he prays a prayer guarding his heart and saying, God, I, there's no way I want to go there without you. There's no way I want to obey you without being with you. Because that's what it's all about. Moses knows where the promised land is. He doesn't need directions. But he won't go without God. And you and I ought to be very much warned by this. We know how to serve God. We know what he's called us unto. But we ought to be warned and cautioned that we better not try to get there without God because what we will find out is we will never get where we thought we were going. Because it was always only about being with God. Moses' devotion then shows up again in verse number 15. Notice. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. This reminds us of Ruth's commitment to Naomi. Remember Ruth said in Ruth 1, 16 and 17 that to Naomi as she was leaving Moab, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth, even though probably very much unaware of this passage in the end of Exodus here, prays this similar prayer and and offers this similar commitment to Naomi. I don't want to go anywhere except for where you are. But why? Why is it that he says, I don't want to go unless you go? If you don't go with us, then we don't want to go. So notice in verse number 16. Is it not your going with us? Well, first of all, he says, For how shall it be known, in verse number 16, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Number one, Moses desires for a sign of God's favor. Moses says, unless you're with me, I don't know 
that it's worth going. I want to be with you before I get there. I want to be with you instead of getting there. My destination is to be with you. Listen, is that your destination? Moses' destination wasn't the promised land. In this prayer, Moses says, where I go is I want to go to you. I don't want to leave you. I don't want you to leave me. And I desire this sign of favor of your presence. But he also desires, so he desires this distinctiveness of his people. What makes God's people distinct? Listen, it's the most profound thing I could say to you this morning. What makes you different than all the rest of the unbelieving world? What makes a Christian distinct in all the world? Listen, it is this. Fundamentally, this. That God is with you. And Moses says, I am realizing what you have done. Is yes, there's the, there's the miraculous exodus from Egypt. And yes, there's the bread and there's the water from the rock and all these things. But all of these miracles aren't what makes me different fundamentally. Christian, what makes you fundamentally, foundationally different is that you are with God and nobody else is. And that, by the way, ought to transform. It ought to change your life. The reckoning of that truth, it ought to fill every moment of every day that what makes you distinct in this fallen world is that God is with you. You're not just an ambassador, although you are. You're not just a witness, although you are. But God is with you. And Moses says, this to him is the greatest of blessings. And secondly, this to him, from his vantage point, also says this makes the people of God distinct. And so it's a desire for the separateness of God's people. Moses desires and he holds God to his word. God, you had said to Abraham that you're going to set apart a people who you're going to pour out your grace on that all the nations of the world would behold. They would behold this special people and all the nations of the world would come and bow before you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so God, this is your time. Come with us to the promised land that all the nations of the world might come and behold you and know that you're the God of grace. This would be the mark of distinction that you would be with us. Peter writes of this in 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9, where he says, you, Christian, are part of a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation that is a set apart, a distinctly different type of people, people for his own possession, Peter says. Why? Why are you pulled out from all the rest of the world? Why is it that you're different? How is by the presence of God, but why? What is the purpose for the distinction of God's people? Peter says, and Moses prays this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why is it that God's people are distinct by His presence? 
so that the world can say, ah, their God's the true God. And how excellent is He and be drawn to Him. And Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to teach them. I want you to baptize them. I want you to make disciples of all nations and bring in all my commands into their hearing. And then He says what? And I will be with you. As you proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, I will go with you to the nations and I will invite them to the place of rest. Moses says, God, your people are going to move in the promised land. They're distinct by your presence. And when you do this mark of distinction, it will stand out. They will be a unique people. And it will be a testimony. It will be a proclamation to all the world that you're the true God. God, this is my heart. This is my desire. And Jesus gives the same commission to you and I. That he goes with us to invite the nations to the place of rest. The people of God in Israel needed a mediator. They needed a mediator. They were, they were rebellious people. Grumbling, complaining, rebellious people. A very sad group of people. A sorry group of people. They needed someone who would stand in their place before God because constantly they were showing they were not worthy to be in the presence of God. They needed someone who would plead their case. Someone who would be their advocate. Someone who would understand the depths of their mercy even if they didn't comprehend their need totally for themselves. Listen, the people of Israel had no idea just how rebellious and how deserving of God's judgment they were, but Moses comprehended at least a good bit of it. Moses comprehended the depths of their mercy and he pleaded their case. There are times, by the way, when you and I just don't recognize just how needy we are. It could be even physically. You have a, maybe you have some sort of symptom, but there's a great problem existing in your body, a great disease or a great affliction, but you just have this minor symptom. You have no idea physically how needy you are. And the same is true spiritually. We can understand that actually without the Bible, no Christian can understand, no person in this world can understand just how desperately needy of mercy and grace they are. And Moses, but Moses sees the heart of God's people and he recognizes they need mercy and grace more than they could ever imagine. And he comes to God as their mediator. And the reason they needed a mediator is the same reason that you and I need a mediator. Well, we may subtly and sometimes even more actually, acutely be aware of our need for mercy and grace. We know little about how, how deeply the ocean of our neediness lies. We are blind and ignorant to the depths of our utter brokenness. And not only do we not perceive the extent of our need, not only do we not perceive or comprehend how desperately needy we are, but we also cannot comprehend 
the immensity of the supply of grace that God has to offer to us. Not only are we incredibly poor, but we have no imagination for how incredibly rich God is in grace. We are doubly ignorant. We have little knowledge of our neediness and little knowledge of God's readiness. And so, we need to talk to God to learn of His readiness, just like Moses did. You see, Moses needed to talk to God about his inadequacy. Lord, I, I don't know, who, who are you going to go, who are you going to send to go with me to go into this place of rest? And, and if, it's, if, if you don't go, I don't want to go, and your people, you've got to come. We need to talk to God to learn about his readiness. And we also need to listen to God to learn of our neediness. And this is where the word of God comes in. Listen, we need to be a people of the word. The only, the only way you will ever know how needy you are and how rich God is is by opening your Bible. And this is where the word of God comes in. Just like it did Moses, God revealed. So to you and I, God reveals. And one reason why we ought to be a people of the word is because we need a different set of lenses to view life from. We need to have a better assessment of our neediness and a better accounting of God's righteousness. Our perceptions are skewed, and at best, we're blind, ultimately. But we must hear from God about our neediness, or, or we remain totally self-deceived that we are right, that we know the way, and that we have enough. And then we also must hear from God how ready and equipped with who He is right there in the way. And as we close, I want you to hear the word of Hebrews. And turn with me to hear to Hebrews chapter 4. And I want you to hear what God has to say about self-assessment. In particular, in how Israel assessed itself here in Exodus. The writer of Hebrews has these people on his mind when he writes Hebrews 4. But he also has you and I on his mind. Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God created on the seventh day from all his works. He rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter in. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also entered from his works as God did from his. Let us then strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 11 is key here. It's key according to our passage this morning. Let's not fail to enter that rest. Some of them did 
Why? Because of disobedience. So what does the writer of Hebrews say will keep us from the same sort of failing disobedience, the same sort of pride that kept Israel from going into the promised land? What keeps them? What keeps them? Verse 12. For the word of God. Looking at your life through the lens of the word of God, who is able to diagnose your neediness and prescribe his righteousness, is the only way you'll keep from being disobedient. The word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than the two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and opposed, exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God says the remedy of understanding who you are is to allow the word of God to expose you. You and I can't know how needy we are unless God reveals it to us. But God doesn't just leave us naked and exposed. God says, here's your clothing. The Word of God does this. Believer, you must be in the Word of God. This is how you find rest. You must allow God to continue to expose areas of your life where you're full of pride, where you're stiff-necked, where you're adorning yourself on the external to make up for what's lacking on the intern. You must read the Word of God to hear God. And then you must follow Him. Moses readily reveals as he writes this book of Exodus that he was not a perfect mediator. At times he was exacerbated with the people. He was confused about God. He was physically weak. He was emotionally exhausted. And intellectually he was in over his head in decision making. Moses wasn't a perfect mediator because he was in need of a mediator himself. And the writer of Hebrews continues on to say in chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. You see, God made the way to the promised land. Listen, God made the way to the promised land and then God got in the way. God made the way for your salvation And then God got in the middle of it. God made the way for you to be at rest. And then God gets to the middle of it and says, you can't get there. But by me. God himself, not Moses, was the ultimate mediator for Israel. And he's become our mediator through Jesus Christ. Listen. The best place... To understand this is by learning that Jesus Christ worked as the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus works to direct our hearts towards God's ultimate fulfillment, that God is rest. Listen, God is rest, not the promised land. God is rest. Behold the way, not just the place. Let's pray.